Hello everyone, howdy hi, welcome back to my channel and today's video. I want to do a casual little chit chat. I, for a very long time now, have been someone who is a fan of Elvis Presley as well as a fan of Marilyn Monroe. I got into both of them around the same time. For me, my teen tween years were 50% subscribing and following and liking the popular boy bands slash teen heartthrobs of the time, such as Justin Bieber, one Direction, and I also liked Mindless Behavior in Five Seconds of Summer. And then on the other 50%, I was obsessed with all things old Hollywood, all things golden age. I was wanting to look like Dorothy Dandridge, Lena Horne, Eartha Kitt, Marilyn Monroe, Jane Mansfield, the list goes on and on and on. So to this day, those are two big things that really sparked my childhood that I still enjoy as an adult to a different degree. For these films that came out this year, as well as the people that they're about, and in my opinion, observing the people who produced and created and worked on these projects and their attitudes towards the individuals discussed, it was interesting, I think, because in my opinion, there is a lot of parallels between both Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley in their lives and their death. And it's very telling to see how they're treated all these years later through the projects being pushed about them and in my opinion too how their estates are managed so i just want to have a casual conversation this is both a youtube video as well as a podcast episode it's in honor of halloween i have no halloween plans i'm not dressing up this is the most of a costume you may get for me and i thought this would be a fun episode to have up today so thank you so much for listening or watching don't forget to like, subscribe, follow the show, and leave a rating where you listen to podcasts. And without further ado, let's get into Blonde versus Elvis. I would say a similarity between both films, Blonde and Elvis, is the casting reactions. I do remember everyone just kind of raising their eyebrows when it was announced that Austin Butler was going to be playing Elvis Presley. The same way I think eyebrows were probably raised when Ana de Armas was named to be casted as Marilyn Monroe. I do find it interesting. I'm going to have to do some digging to see because I personally didn't see anything in my bubble and corner of social media. But I didn't see a lot of people questioning why a Cuban actress was casted to play a American Caucasian woman. But... I'm not saying that it's necessarily a bad thing. I just don't think I saw really any comments about that. I do believe the official estate of Marilyn Monroe did congratulate Anna, but that's as far as they went to acknowledging this project. And there was just 50-50 reaction, but there wasn't anyone that I saw. There's probably things out there, right? But from what I saw, no one actually like raised an eyebrow at that. They were just kind of like, oh, okay, they're doing another Marilyn Monroe project. But a lot of people who I would say are very protective of Marilyn as a person probably had some thoughts and I find that interesting. So they both kind of had this reputation that preceded them going into these projects of why are these people playing these icons of American culture? They don't even look alike. But hey, hair and makeup did amazing on both projects. I will say that before I give my opinion on both films and the pros and cons and get into other deeper level parts of this conversation, I will say I think hair and makeup did a phenomenal job on both Blonde and Elvis. I think the costumes looked amazing, very spot on, as well as the actors themselves looked as much as they could as the person 
that they were playing because at the end of the day they have different features they aren't those people so they're not of course going to look 100% unless some serious CGI and or prosthetics were put onto them so for what we were given I do think that there was a little bit of confusion when the casting came out however hair and makeup really truly did give a very phenomenal performance with transforming the individuals into who they were supposed to be portraying. Initially, Oates planned to write a novella about the metamorphosis of an ordinary high school girl into a star who loses her real name and is given a studio name that will obliterate her history and identity. The book was to have ended with the words Marilyn Monroe, but as Oates watched all of Monroe's movies, learned more about her intelligence and humor, her and her determination to be seen as a serious actress and the intersection of her career with multiple strands of mid 20th century American culture, sports, religion, crime, theater, politics. She realized that she needed a larger fictional form to explore a woman who was much more than a victim. In 2015, Oates told Nicholas Charles, a journalist from Times Magazine, that as the book evolved and grew over two years of research and writing, she began half seriously to think of Monroe as my Moby Dick, the most powerful gavelizing image about which an epic might be constructed with a myriad levels of meaning and significance, building an epic novel around a woman, let alone a celebrity out of popular culture, gossip, and fan magazines was a bold undertaking, but Oates saw profound aspects to Monroe's story that made it possible to think of her seriously as a tragic and representative American figure. And in other words of one reviewer, who did not know Melville had been one of Oates' models, she succeeded completely. And I quote, Blonde is a true mythic blowout in which Marilyn is everything and nothing, a great white whale of significance standing out for the blind power of nature, but for the blind power of artifice. As Oates writes on the copyright page, Blonde is not a biography of Monroe, or even a biographical novel that follows the historical facts of the subject's life. Indeed, Monroe's dozens of biographers have disagreed about the many basic facts of her life. Blonde is a work of fiction and imagination, and Oates plays with, rearranges, and invents the details of Monroe's life in order to achieve a deeper poetic and spiritual truth. She condenses and completes events in a process she calls distillation, so that in the place of numerous foster homes, lovers, medical crises, and screen performances, she explores only a selected symbolic few. At the same time, Oates develops and deepens background themes inherent in Monroe's story, including the growth of Los Angeles, the history of film, the House of Un-American Activities Committee's witch hunt for communists in the film industry, and the blacklist. Each of these storylines could be a novel in itself, but like the chapters in the ectology and wailing of Moby Dick, they heighten the epic quality of the novel. Oates continues, it's not a feel-good movie. Many films about Marilyn are kind of upbeat and have a lot of music and singing. She's very beautiful and sweet. This one's probably closer to what she actually experienced. The last few days of her life were brutal. Oates previously shared her reaction to the film after watching a rough cut in August of 2020, tweeting that Blonde is a startling, brilliant, very disturbing, and probably most surprisingly, an utterly feminist interpretation of her novel. And I quote, not sure that any male director has ever achieved anything like this, end quote. She later called the film an exquisite portrait of Marilyn Monroe by Anna de Armas and Andrew Dominic. 
One without the other could perhaps not have worked this magic. The tone of the film is hard to classify, not surreal, but not totally realistic. Not horror, but suffused with the dread of horror. In The New Yorker, she clarifies that she had very little to do with the film adaptation of her novel. I saw the almost final cut and they kind of embargoed film and I tried to see it within 48 hours. They're so afraid of these films being pirated. Oates reflected, I had to stop watching about midway through. The film is emotionally exhausting. All the parts are quite fascinating. It's grueling though, it's almost three hours long. I had to stop watching it, go away for a couple of hours and come back. It's demanding of the viewer. The last quarter is hallucinatory. It's not the movie you're watching as much to be immersed in, not for the faint of heart. When asked about her reaction to the controversial NC-17 rating for the film, Oates said, she doesn't have any particular feelings about the NPA rating system. The real things that happened to Marilyn Monroe are much worse than anything in this movie, Oates commented. Writer Dominic previously echoed Oates' sentiment on the hashtag MeToo movement leading into the adaptation of Blonde. Dominic revealed to Screen Daily via Collider that the film wouldn't have got done without the hashtag MeToo movement because, and I quote, nobody was interested in that sort of explicit, what it's like to be an unloved girl or what it's like to go through the Hollywood meat grinder. Blonde director Andrew Dominic has previously said he was unfamiliar with Marilyn Monroe's filmography before adapting Joyce Carol Oates' book about the lake actor. Now, Dominic says Monroe starred in a whole lot of movies that nobody really watches, calling her famous romance film, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, a movie about well-dressed explicits. Dominic's comments were a part of an outtake from an interview with the British Film Institute's Sight and Sound magazine. Journalist Christina Newland, who conducted the interview, posted the transcript on Twitter in which Dominic asked, does anyone watch Marilyn Monroe movies? Newland added in a new follow-up tweet, I do want to make sure I'm doing my due diligence here. Dominic did talk about and reference many of her films. He clearly had studied and watched everything, whether he liked it, some like it hot, which he loves, and another story, evidently. In the interview, Dominic also addressed the criticisms for the film's NC-17 portrayals of certain topics. The director, who previously boasted the film would, quote, offend everyone, responded, I'm not concerned with being tasteful. Well, she was a strange explicit symbol because she doesn't have to die at the end of a lot of her films like Barbara Steinwick or Rita Hayworth, Dominic said but she had to be a little baby. I think Marilyn was a guy's girl. I don't think she was a woman who had a lot of female friends, but then I think she's a woman who didn't have a lot of friends. There's a sense that we went to reinvent her according to today's political concerns. She was a person who was extraordinarily self-destructive. I think she was clearly an extraordinarily powerful person, but I don't think she was built for success in the way that people see it today. So with everyone, there are moments of strength and people want to say she took control of her life, but she wanted to destroy her life. So I think the film about the meaning of Marilyn Monroe or a meaning, she was symbolic of something. She was the Aphrodite of the 20th century, the American goddess of love. And then she explicited herself. So what does that mean? Blonde, as you will know, has been released and I started the video in this section by reading what Joyce Carol Oates and Andrew Dominic had to say about Marilyn because this was a movie 10 years in the making 
and here you have two people who feel they know best of a person's life and this goes really first with the novel in my opinion to take someone's life and to use it as your example of what you think the american film industry is i'm not saying that the film industry wasn't harmful to a lot of the entertainers in the golden age of hollywood or old hollywood or even present day hollywood i'm not saying that the system of changing your name changing your looks to fit a new mold is going to be beautiful and transformative for every person but i find it interesting that at the end of the day a real person was taken and their lifelike image was used to tell a fictional story and we have two people who feel they now have a say in portraying this story without knowledge of it being fiction or fact and standing in their truth of saying they think that this person had a hard life and that they're showing their truth and that this person wasn't all the things that they potentially and were in their lifetime. And the reason I find this all interesting is because I wouldn't want this for anyone. I wouldn't want there to be a book about a person that's not their life story but uses their image and also portrays very heavy topics that may or may not have happened to them. I don't think it's right. I wouldn't personally want to be involved in a project like that. And there is a little bit of maliciousness in the intent to try to spin it as this positive thing or a way to help the person, especially when there's no one left that's truly advocating for them. And I find it very interesting that while he watched her films, he took it as things such as her being watched by the FBI for how much she was involved in civil rights issues as well as her participation with the Un-American Committee and their central witch hunt for finding people in Hollywood that were potentially allegedly, uh, what word should I use, undercover communist at the time and her starting her own production company and her having a library in her home, all these things in his opinion didn't mean anything. She's not someone to look up to because of her mental health struggles that anyone can face. And so I wanted to start with how both the novelist and the director of the current Blonde film felt about Marilyn because it, it doesn't feel that it came from a place of sincerity, it came from a place of opportunity, in my opinion. And you can tell. You can tell. And on the flip side, I want to kind of just read some of the comments of the individuals who were behind the vision of the film Elvis. The film is really a story about the biz and the show, Lerman tells GQ, but it isn't Elvis did this and Elvis did that. It's actually about America in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. He's at the center of culture for the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mr. Lerman did not want to make a mere biopic. He wanted to make a wildly ambitious movie about race and explicit and class and music in America through three decades, the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. There are three Elvises, the rock and roll punk, the movie star in the Hollywood bubble, and the one that is addicted, divorced, in Vegas who feels caught in a trap, as the line from the song Suspicious Minds goes, and shows the fatigue of being stuck as the campy character bursting out in the tight white jumpsuit. And I quote, I'm just so tired of playing Elvis Presley, he said. 
the year before he died. Mr. Lerman wanted to restore humanity to Elvis, who became, he said, like a Halloween costume or a wallpaper. He's so there. He's so not there anymore. And even long after the release, you see this enthusiasm, this endearment towards Elvis, the person that is portrayed in this project that we don't necessarily see given towards Marilyn Monroe and most things about her, but more particularly in Blonde. Again, a movie that's not a biopic, not factual, a fictional story about the industry that uses her likeness to sell a story. And I found that interesting because here we are in 2022 and we have two people who I feel are very similar in what they represented in the time they were alive and what happened to them in their life and essentially how they left this current earth with us. If this were a English course and the teacher asked, can you name the parallels between the stars, Meryl Monroe and Elvis Presley? My answer would be, you have two people who are symbols of the 1950s Americana. They both were considered scandalous for the conservative culture of their time. Both individuals had family traumas. They later in their careers developed prescription addictions. They had short, untimely deaths. And ultimately, through all of the glamour that they portrayed and the outfits and the costumes they put on for people, the thing that they truly were passionate about and that they loved is what killed them. And I don't know if both Elvis and Norma slash Marilyn knew in their life that the thing that they loved was going to be their demise or that things would play out the way they did, but we do know that they loved what they did. And we do know that that love and that passion led them to the places that took them down a dark road. And as Boz states in a lot of these interviews, both people have now been rebranded. They're not seen as people, they're costumes. Elvis Presley, that's the person you go take a picture with when you go to the Las Vegas Strip. Marilyn Monroe's that lady in the white dress that you go to have an image with on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Those aren't people, those are Halloween costumes. And in a sense, they were costumes that both individuals put on. They were a persona. They were a version of them personified. And I do want to get into the book, My Story, because I did read it this year. Not sure why it took me so long to read that book, but I felt like it was very insightful while abrupt. And I do have my thoughts on why it was abrupt. But Monroe herself even says Marilyn is this persona that she puts on and it's the beautiful glamorous version of her that she always wanted to be but that she's grateful she isn't all the time she likes to put her on and take her off and I find that interesting because there's a quote from Elvis that I just came across that has that same sentiment too Elvis had held a press conference and a hotel ballroom jammed with a couple of people clad in a blue satin jumpsuit the singer with the mane of black hair and a showbiz smile received his audience with patience and grace. Off to the side, as always, his manager, the big-bellied, straw-hatted, cigar-carrying Colonel Tom Parker, watched over him. During the conference, a reporter barks a question at Elvis, prompting a revealing exchange. Are you satisfied with the image you've established, he asked. Elvis replied, uh, well, the image is one thing and the human being is another, you know, so 
The reporter cut him off. How close does the image come to the man? It's very hard to live up to an image. I'll put it that way. I do think that final parallel that really sticks out to me about both of these individuals is the loss of their mothers. Both Norma and Elvis truly had an admiration for their mothers. So when Norma lost her mother to mental illness and she had to be taken to an orphanage despite not actually being an orphan, just not having a parental figure in her life that could care for her, and seeing those mental health struggles as a young child and then understanding that genetically she was disposed to this. And she does talk about that in her autobiography. And it wasn't just her mother that had mental health struggles. There were multiple family members that she knew had to be institutionalized and that had their own problems. She truly was alone. She never got to reconnect with her biological father. And while she made friends and she was cared for by people in the industry that worked with her from her hair and makeup crew to her acting teacher she truly only had herself and that can get lonely that can be a very isolating place because those people have their own priorities their own families you don't really have what we in a society deem as that pillar that stone that rock as a real family while you can pick your family and those people can mutually decide, yes, we are family. I think in her case, even though she had those people, those people had their families too. And she didn't truly have the foundation she would have needed. And in the case of Elvis, I do think despite him having a father that survived the death of his mother, it wouldn't replace what his mother had gave him and the connection and bond he had with her. He additionally at birth lost his twin brother and I'm so fascinated by the study of twins and I do think it would have been interesting to know more about how he must have felt as a twin that survived without the other twin because there's many stages to this. There's people who lose their twins at birth, there's people who lose their twins after they've grown for a while and it truly is a unique experience, a unique bond that most siblings don't have and that even some other nuclear family relations don't have with each other and i do i do think it's interesting to see the dependency of the mother figure and how in both of these cases it was lost and it both impacted the individuals in such a significant way is very telling to how things played out for both of them and the people that they put their trust into that in the end did fail them and led them to what happened to them at the end of their lives and influenced their decisions to get there. I wanna talk about estates because how we know both of these individuals in this current time really falls back on what happened with the handling of their estates and their image and their likeness. At the time of her death, 75% of her physical properties and her intellectual property was left to her acting coach, Lee Strasberg, and his wife, Paula Strasberg, who were essentially like her surrogate parents at the time. And she had a very close relationship with them and spent a lot of time with them. And they basically became a second family for her. However, at the time of Lee Strasberg's death, he had remarried in 1967 to a woman named Anna Mazrahi. And she, in the end, inherited the estate upon her husband's death in 1982. She sold this in 2011 to Authentic Brands Group and it was around an estimated 20 to 30 million. 
at the time of Marilyn's death, her estate was worth around 8,000, or excuse me, 800,000. And this would have been around 7.8 million in 2022 when adjusting for inflation. When she was alive and during her career, Marilyn earned a little under 3 million, 24 million by today's economy from her film salary. Authentic Brands Group also owns the image likeness and I guess we'll just say intellectual property of Elvis Presley. They are an LLC that is headquartered in New York City. Its holdings include various apparel, athletics, entertainment brands for which it partners with other companies to license and merchandise. They were founded in 2010 by Jamie Salter and there's a lot of places and people that you and I know of that fall under their projects, their portfolio. So I'm just going to list some off the top so you can get an idea of what this company owns. 50 plus brands, 1300 plus global partners, 9100 stores, 40, wow, 452.8 million total social media followers, 24 billion global retail sales. Some of their brand portfolio includes Aeropostal, Eddie Bauer, Elvis Presley, Forever 21, Juicy Couture, Izod, Jones New York, Lucky Brand, Marilyn Monroe, Muhammad Ali, Nautica, Nine West, Neil Lane, Shaquille O'Neal, Ted Baker, Vince Camuto, Volcom. And for those of you who aren't 100% sure what this means and what I'm talking about, the Twitter, the Instagram, the partnerships. So for example, there's a Marilyn Monroe jewelry collection the same way there is now a Elvis Presley jewelry collection. I have seen Marilyn Monroe merchandise for a lack of better term because of YouTube's broad censorship of certain words and such. Those recently came out and I was very confused because Again, when I talk about her autobiography, she was not actually the persona everyone expected her to be. She wasn't a overly scandalous woman. She actually really wasn't into that at all. She was very mellow, calm out. She was a romantic at heart and she wasn't this promiscuous woman that the studio pushed her to be in her films and her characters. And I've seen the Marilyn Monroe nail salons. I don't know if they're just called salons or just nail salons. I think they're called just nail salons. There was actually one in Jacksonville, but they made it when I was going to college at Florida State University. So I never got to go. It's probably closed because I don't know how many people would just flocked to the nail salon just because it had Marilyn's likeness on it. But you never know. I mean, they were big enough to expand to Jacksonville. So hey, um, that's essentially what you see. In fact, I want to say that they actually have a JCPenney's line now too with her likeness and the clothing is actually not that cute which is disappointing because her casual everyday fits were very very stylish and so for all these millions of dollars these images this likeness can be put on anything to make more money essentially and I find it interesting I actually was reading Shaquille O'Neal even though he is one of those images and brands that this this company owns, he worked his way to being one of the top shareholders. So now he essentially owns a good chunk of this business as well. So as he liked to have stated it, he owns 
the likeness and the imagery of Elvis Presley and Marilyn Monroe and Muhammad Ali, etc, etc, etc. And in a way, there is a responsibility to this. I, I feel there should be, at least, because we are using real-life people and it really falls back on that point of are we treating them like they were real people or are we treating them like they were characters and that they didn't go through life with the highs and lows and emotions and everything in between because I for one again love Marilyn films love Elvis films and music I'm not saying that I'm going to discredit the sense that they put on these personas for us as entertainment but we should still treat them like people we should still respect that this was a lot for them in their lifetime and to just kind of diminish the person is a little insincere. I did experience a lot of that growing up too. As I stated, I was very much into the old Hollywood glamour. And anytime I talked about Marilyn, people would just like roll their eyes at me and say, why would you want to be anything like her? She was trashy. She was messy. They basically fed off of a lot of the rumors and things that weren't true about her, things that were pushed as tabloid stories and media gotchas and when I had to explain to people what she did for civil rights movements, what she did in her personal time, who she was as a person, that she was actually very funny and a very good actor, that she was passionate about her craft, no one ever knows what I'm talking about and they're very surprised at who Marilyn actually was as a person and just like Boz, I do think at the end of the day there is a little bit of responsibility if you are going to go to the extremes of making money off of these people to at least show who they were as humans. I'm just saying. While Elvis's likeness is owned by the company, I will make it known because I then became curious as somebody who went to Graceland and loved the experience. I wanted to know who owned Graceland and Lisa Marie Presley, according to Graceland.com, remains and retains 100% sole personal ownership of Graceland Mansion itself, as well as its 13-acre original grounds and her father's personal effects, meaning costumes, wardrobe, awards, furniture, cars, etc. And as I just said, the property is allowed to be used for tours and other things. When we went, we were able to see the Lisa Marie plane. We were able to do a tour of the mansion. There were some backgrounds. There was the burial area of the family's I don't even know. It was a very beautiful area. I mean, I actually am not afraid. I actually like going to cemeteries and graves and reflecting there. But I'll call it like a reflection pool pond. And it had essentially the Presley family at the time. I don't know if anyone else that had space there has passed. But everyone that had passed up until the point when I visited Graceland was there. And a lot of the original... I'm gonna call it grave memorabilia that was gifted to the Presley family after Elvis's passing was around the site and it was very just interesting to see. I don't know if we got to do everything because there was a car collection that I probably would have loved because I've wanted a pink car my whole life and I'm pretty sure the pink Cadillac was in that exhibit that I didn't get to see and I do believe that at the time there was a Viva Las Vegas exhibit that I did get to see because it was just we'd been there all day and there was just still so much to do. I do remember at the time the Heartbreak Hotel was still around and she is gone but the plans that they had put out at the time I had went are now done. The new venue, the new hotel is up. It looks amazing. So 
this is like not sponsored this is just a shameless plug saying i really found graceland to be fun i would love to go back and it's very nice to know that at least someone in the family owns the property and it's not 100% owned by a company because unlike Marilyn's case, at least Elvis has people that survived him that potentially can have a say and an interest in his belongings and the things that he once possessed in his lifetime. As promised, before we wrap this up, I did want to talk about my story because I have not read any other autobiographies. I'm thinking that's why I'm <laughs> having those like cue pauses there. I don't believe I've read any other autobiographies. I have read self-help-ish books like The Gucci Mane Guide to Greatness. I've read Point in Time memoirs such as What Remains by Carol Razowell. I've read historical fictions like Jackie and Maria, but I don't think I've actually read an autobiography or even a biography. That's a lie. I did read um, Frederick Douglass's autobiography in high school. That might be the only other one. And that's more of a historical autobiography. I mean in the sense of movie star, celebrity, dumb, because there's so many out there. I didn't know this. Thank you for the internet for introducing me to that. But I don't know why it took me so long as someone who loves Marilyn. I've always joked and said there's like I've always joked and said there's a lot of things that we have similar. I've always wanted to just be blonde. <laughs> I am a Gemini just like she is. I'm very passionate about acting like she was, I should say. And I do just, in a way, have this really deep understanding that is why, even though I loved so many other people from that time period, there was something about her that stuck out to me when I learned who she was as a person because there was a lot of things that she went through that I could already relate to as a teenager. So that said, if you are interested, if you're gonna read anything about her, at least read what she did right. I do think this abruptly ends because while we don't literally get the confirmation, it it's very visually evident that Things weren't picture perfect with DiMaggio, things weren't picture perfect with Miller, and she very clearly wanted to be a mother, and her health concerns are a big reason why she could never have a full-term pregnancy. And those are things that kind of led to her own mental health struggles later in life. But I do think this, if I am to read any other celebrity autobiography, the whole reason I said that whole spiel in the beginning is this book is so honest. She names some people she doesn't name others she talks about the things that happened to her in childhood she talks about the things that happened to her she started acting as she pursued modeling she she's honest she's very honest it's it's super short it's it's an easy read for example chapter 12 they even throw pictures in there like every other <laughs> celebrity book but it, it's not like the chapters are that long because boom chapter 13 and it's why when I decided to be the one that watches Blonde, because at first I was one of those people who said I wasn't going to watch it, I just kind of got cold because most of the stuff I saw, I was like, there's no, there's no way. After what I've read, after everything she's truly shared with us, 
I don't think any of this is true and it's so disheartening that a lot of it's being pushed off as believable. There's a lot of people who don't understand that that's a fictional story and it's not it's not to be held to any weight. There's no merit to it. It's just the minds of other people using her likeness for what they feel is the Hollywood machine and how it destroys bright-eyed young stars. And I do I do truly think that if there's ever going to be an image of what Norma Jean was and who Marilyn was, it's this book. And I quote, My heart almost stopped when he said this. I was going to have it engraved, I answered, but I changed my mind. Why, he asked. He looked very tenderly at me. Because you'll leave me someday, I said, and you'll have some other girl to love, and thus you wouldn't be able to use my present if my name was on it. This way you can always use it, as if it were something you bought yourself. Usually, when a woman says that sort of thing to her lover, she expects a contradicted and soothed out of her fears. I didn't. At night, I lay in bed and I cried. To love without hope is such a sad thing for the heart. It took me two years to pay the jeweler the $500 for context, the item she was referring to. By the time I had paid the last $25 installment for it, my lover had moved on and was married to another woman. It's, it's, the, it's the rawness in this book that makes me realize she's told us her story. She talks about her childhood. She talks about her adulthood. And like I said, this leads all the way up to Korea after her first marriage during the honeymoon. So I don't know. There's just something really sad when you read all the books, you see all the movies, the documentaries, the conspiracies, all the things. Because at its core is a woman who was talented, was funny, and was a girl who came from literally nothing and just wanted to make a name for herself and be successful and and hopefully break the generational curse that was bestowed upon her. And in a way, again, I feel the same thing with Elvis Presley. He was a boy who loved to sing and he took a lot of those influences from the area he was from and songs he didn't write, but he was gonna make it turn him into a star and it did, but when you've got managers and people in your life that like to mooch off of you, we see that time and time again with the modern stars. It just, it takes them and it's not generous to them. And even now it's interesting to see it play out in real time with our present day singers, actors, writers, whoever they may be. And I'm sure in listening to this so far, you probably have a person or two in mind that this story is basically the same story, just different face. As for what I wish we could see for them both, um, I mean, it's wishful thinking, right? You've got their likeness resulting in millions of dollars. There's no way these companies are just going to give that up. They're going to keep putting their faces on things. People are always going to cosplay them, reenact them. I don't know, just be them, take pictures with you, dressed up as them, convince themselves that they're them reincarnated in the flesh. We can't stop that, of course. And I think at least from a fan viewpoint, in my lifetime, I would like to see the actual Marilyn Monroe story told in a series, in a movie. I mean, she's told us so much in this book that while there's so many debates, discussions, arguments as to what's the truth, I think we should just go off of what she told us. I don't think we're owed any more than that. And that goes for any artist, any person, because these are people at the end of the day. And 
I'd love to see something that truly just tells her story so that this grand spectacular conspiracy that is Marilyn Monroe at least there's one true two true outlets that tell us who normal was as a person as for Elvis I don't know it seems like he's about to have his revamp into the remakes the redos the retellings I do think Elvis was a good film it just talks about the key points in his life it doesn't go into much detail it kind of surfs over the top as Boz said it's more of a story of the showbiz during those years and how he as a pop culture icon plays into that but I do think it was done well and I think it was done respectfully and that's really all you can ask for when telling these these stories about people in their lives I would like to see Graceland thrive I think Elvis Radio through Sirius XM is fun and if they are going to keep making things maybe if they are going to do the documentaries and the shows and stuff maybe dig a little bit deeper but I, I don't think that we really need the 50 plus movies and shows and everything else and I'm also aware nobody knows who I am and nobody actually cares about my opinion on these topics either but I don't know I am a consumer at the end of the day so I know what I will and I won't watch and pay for and I did eventually bite the bullet and watch Blonde and my only review is don't watch it it's terrible there's nothing true to it it's distasteful it's cynical its cinematography is beautiful it's a visually beautiful film but it's soul draining for no reason and it is truly disrespectful to the woman that it's using and as for elvis it's over the top it's nothing less that you would expect from boz as a director love his work i love romeo plus juliet the great gatsby i'm i'm in there the get down spectacular love his work and it did feel a little shell, a little hollow. So if they were to remake an Elvis film or show, I'd want more detail. I would like to get into the controversies of his music. I would like to get into the controversies of his marriage. Um, but for what it was worth, I think it was a good film. And I would 100% recommend you watch that at least once before watching Blonde at all. Despite Blonde being a very visually beautiful film, that's all it's got. And I don't think that's much. So that's my very short take on both projects and kind of where I'm at with what we do with Marilyn and Elvis. I've got to visit Elvis, as creepy as that sounds, but I do one day want to get to Los Angeles so I can pay my respects to Marilyn too. I don't know. I just think about Blonde and how they were trying to say her ghost was haunting the set. I would be haunting the set too. If, if someone was doing that to me, I would be haunting the set too. <laughs> Clap if you agree. <laughs> because if you've seen the film, you know what I'm talking about. Like all those years for someone you don't care about that much to not have anything respectful to say about them, to campaign to have this movie made. And that's the movie. Thank you so much for joining me on this little chit chat, whether it's in podcast or YouTube form. As always, you're important, love blessed. Check the description for more from me and click one of the videos that comes up on the screen to watch more of me. If you enjoyed this video, I don't really have a niche. I'm all over the place. I'm just a girl who knows she's going to be a star. <laughs> so I just show who I am, even though no one knows my name yet. And that's all I got. So I really do hope you all enjoyed this chit chat. Leave me your thoughts, comments good or bad about Marilyn, Elvis, their lives and death, 
Blonde, Elvis the film, if you even saw those. If you did watch Blonde again, I am so sorry. I, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. It is unnecessarily heavy for no reason because it's not even, it's, it's one thing I think if Blonde really didn't use Marilyn's likeness, I wouldn't have an issue with it and it probably would be a better film. But because they used a real person and told nothing but blasphemy about them, it just makes me uncomfortable personally. But that's all we got folks. That's the show. I hope you enjoyed. And if you didn't, you at least made it to this point. So I got your view. As always, I will see you in the next one. Take care and don't forget all the things because I think I've said it 20 times now. <laughs> I will chat with you or see you in the next one.